Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 139 with our guest, Guy Horrix. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing. Hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. We are live at the... Podcast Row Propellify event, Innovation Festival, sitting here in beautiful Hoboken, New Jersey at Pier A. It is beautiful, right? Although it's raining. I, I can't see any of it through the through the, the rain. I know. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. It's it, beautiful. It is. Now, uh, I'm sitting here with Guy Horrocks. Um, you are from uh, New Zealand. Is, is New Zealand anything like this or it's not? Yeah. Rainy and dreary at yeah, all. Yeah, we get we get rain. Uh, yeah, it's uh, especially especially certain areas we get a lot of rain because we're an island in the middle of nowhere. So yeah. But this isn't your first impression. You now live here. Yeah, I've lived here the last seven eight years. Yeah. Right. So And we're going to talk about that journey because I understand that there's a lot to to just uh, dissecting and understanding what brought you here, how it brought you here. Uh, so let's start right in the in the middle. In a sense, I know that um, one of your businesses back in your home, uh, home country, uh, at one point there was just a series of unfortunate events, I believe, starting with an earthquake, right? Can you paint yeah. this picture for us? Yeah. So What was um, going on? So I had a company called Carnival Labs at the time. We were like a mobile development agency, and uh, we, we sort of had this kind of just like, yeah, really crazy two-week period. Uh, it actually started with, we, we used to work a lot with uh, an agency called the Hyper Factory that was based in New York and New Zealand, and they gave us a lot of great contracts, so we started working with HBO and Kraft Foods, and um, it was sort of a bit of, bit of edge kind of thing, bittersweet thing, because the when you work with agencies and you're a, a services company, the agency gets all the glory, <laughs> and like rightfully so in some ways they they own the client relationship and all that stuff you're kind of like the second tier down and so even if you come up with the idea design it develop it you never get you get like 30 percent of the money you get like none of the glory it's like the actor and uh and the crew relationship yeah 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 Yeah. exactly you know like one person becomes super famous and then the other person makes that person famous so it was kind of bit like I'm very grateful for like all the clients they gave us and all that stuff. It gave us a huge like stepping stone, but I think it was one of these things where we were starting to think we have to move out of the shadow of these agencies, 
and then that agency sold to Meredith Corporation, a big public company, and they moved their development to India. And so we had just hired five people. We're a tiny, we're a th- we were a three-person company. We'd grown to an eight-person company in New Zealand. And we just suddenly overnight lost like 85% of our revenue because they decided to basically stop working with us. So while you were, on one hand, kicking and screaming about said relationship, they're like, well, we're, we're, yeah. we're going to leave. Not that they understand. You know, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's one yeah. of those things where you sort of like, yeah, you can take no, the... No, but I still love you. Yeah, yeah. You, you sort of bite the hand that feeds, you know? It's kind of... Um, we knew it was a risk, but it's tough to build those relationships. And, and that company, the Hyperfactory, had done well building them, and they rightfully deserved yeah. most of the credit, most of the money. We were an outsourced vendor, uh, but it's a bit of pill to swallow when suddenly like you have this kind of gravy train of like work just continually coming in, yeah. and then it's just cut off in one moment. So that happened, and we sort of had an idea it could happen, so I just started my first direct pitching, and we got down to the final two for a big contract with Wimbledon in London. And so I flew from the States over to Wimbledon, over to London. So it was a big expense, you know, like we're pitching early stage startup. We got to the final two and they decided they didn't want to work with a New Zealand company, bad time zone, other side of the world. <laughs> bad time zone. Yeah, it's like, you know. Hey, if that's the worst of it, but I get it. Yeah, they sort of saw it as risk. And so they went with someone down the road a lot easier, which I totally get. Um, so we lost that pitch and went out for drinks that night in London with some friends and I was coming back home to my brother's place who lives there and my taxi this is pre-Uber um, didn't know where to go didn't know the maps and did a U-turn because he'd driven past my brother's place it was like 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning and he U-turned right in front of a Range Rover and the Range Rover T-boned the taxi and the black cab and the door was like smashed in. I wasn't wearing a seatbelt, I was in the back, but somehow like I got shaken up, but I didn't get hurt, which was a miracle. And they had to like pull the door off to get me out of the taxi. And I sort of stumbled home kind of drunk at the time and went to bed and then flew back home to New Zealand. And then like a day or two later, uh, my city in Christchurch got hit by this massive earthquake that destroyed half the city. So our office was like destroyed. Uh, we had an office in, in where my dad's building, my dad's accounting firm was. We were in the same building. And so it was just like, it was a bit of a depressing time. Uh, we're suddenly looking at like a monthly outlay of like eight people's salaries where we've got no income. We just lost our first big pitch that we thought we were going to win. And now like there's this massive earthquake and the city's like super scary and there's all these aftershocks and so all this happened in the course of how long? I think it was like a week, maybe Oh a, really? Maybe a two week. weeks. Wow. Yeah. yeah. How do you in real time, how are you processing this? Are you trying to keep a sense of okay, I'll get through this, or were you just like, you know what, just end it all now. I can't I don't know what to do anymore. I think to be honest, the, the earthquakes were the worst because there was just thousands of aftershocks and We'd, we'd grown up never really having earthquakes. It, like, New Zealand sits on a fault line, just like California. But, like, in our city, we didn't really have a fault line right under the city. And I'd never really felt an earthquake really properly before. And so suddenly have one that's destroyed buildings and stuff was, like, and I think, you know, like 180 or 160 people died as well. So it was, like, pretty full on. Um, so you were happy to be living. There was that. Yeah, yeah and, like, I think... Um, 
my wife is like really calm and collective. Um, so she was a lawyer working in the city. And uh, I think she dealt with it better than I did. Like I was kind of like not really wanting to be there because it's like we're, my parents' house was a triple brick, like 100-year-old house. And so like you're in this house, you see all these buildings that are brick, made out of bricks that are just crumbled into dust. And you sort of think like, I don't really want to be in another brick building when there's an earthquake. Like, so yeah, it was a pretty full on time. Um, I think the toughest thing, yeah, it was just like, yeah, like you're thinking about these earthquakes and then thinking about like the fact that we don't have any revenue and we're going to have to put money back into the company to make payroll. So it was a bit, yeah, it was a bit depressing overall. <laughs> yeah, how did you stay sane day to day? Yeah, I think, I don't know. Like I think, I don't even know. I think you're just trying to manage and get through it. Um, there was a lot worse stuff happening to other people that lost people or they, you know, their whole livelihoods have been down the drain. And, and so we didn't have internet the first couple of days. And I'm trying to pitch U.S. clients and suddenly you don't have an internet connection. So it's just like stuff like that was just, you know, things you take for granted. There's no like the toilet systems weren't working, <laughs> you know, like stuff like that. You're literally having to go out and like dig a hole and use a hole and fill up the hole at one stage. Like it didn't last that long. Like New Zealand's a pretty relatively sophisticated first world nation. So like, but the first few days it was kind of chaos, you know? Wow. I drove down. I didn't know my, uh, my dad's building was near one of the buildings that collapsed. So it was actually in between two of the the two main buildings that collapsed that killed people. And all I saw was this dust coming up from the city, cell phone towers all overloaded. So you can't ring anyone for like three, four hours. So we don't know like someone's in danger. I was at home with my mom and our, our old house, this big old brick house. Like I just remember like being in a door frame and getting like thrown to the ground and seeing a crack just go straight across the, the wall of our kitchen. And we ran outside and I ran back in to get our phone and like you wow. couldn't actually like it was like one of those things where you were, you were scared to run into a house to get a phone. Oh my god. Because there were so many aftershocks yeah. you thought the house could collapse. So it was just it was it was quite an unsettling time and then um like I didn't know if my girlfriend was okay because yeah. she was right in town and from that moment, what was the the next moment where you started seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. You started seeing a paycheck. What? Yeah, yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. So um, I suppose there was like there was like one more negative for for the positive. So oh, I'm, I'm, oh, good. Yeah, because I needed a <laughs> Why few not? more. Right. So I moved up to Auckland temp temporarily, um, and my business partner moved to Wellington. So those are like in the North Island of New Zealand. Auckland's the main city, and so we started working on pitching some clients up there. And we had one big pitch uh, for TVNZ, which is the New Zealand national big TV network. And we got to the final two, and they chose a big ad agency. And we'd built, like, some of the first mobile apps in the world, the first Twitter app. Like, we had this amazing track record. Yet. yet right? I love that. These big companies would choose a Saatchi and Saatchi or, like, a draft FTB over a small eight-person mobile agency because they saw us as high risk. Even but even though, though you had we the, the credentials, you had the resume, you had the yeah. history, but what was it? You old, didn't have the name? Old Boys Network a yeah. little bit, the right. name, the risk. I think like public companies, like it's always like you're never going to get fired for hiring IBM or McKinsey. It's, it's like <laughs> oh, wow. it's a little bit of that. And so I said to my business partner, look, there's the market in New Zealand small and tiny. We can spend the next three years like building our network here. Or I can go out to New York, 
and I can pitch brands and stuff there and we can build our network there. And I think my business partner Cody was like very skeptical. He's like, he always knew that I wanted to go to New York. <laughs> so he's like, is this just a junket? Like we're at this tipping point in the company where we have no money to pay our staff. Like, are you just going to junket? Like, and then we're not together working through this and like, and so it took a little persuasion and I started building out like some lists of people I could talk to and people who could give me intros. And so I said, look, I'll pay for my first ticket over. I'll pay for the costs. And then if we start signing contracts, the company can start paying, you know, some of the costs. And so I came out here and I got very lucky. I knew one person and he was a photographer um, who's an amazing friend of mine from Christchurch. And he, he was the only person I knew. And then I got an intro to a guy at Google who was a New Zealander. So the New Zealand network helped hugely. The guy at Google, Craig, gave me an intro to this guy, Mark, at Time Warner. Mark introduced me to all these people at CNN. Wow. And the day after he introduced me, he quit the company and joined Facebook. So he gave me, like, the one last favor before he walked out the door of the company. That's great. And, uh, yeah, and then we, like, two months later, three months later, we signed CNN as to be their mobile uh, development partner. I, I just got the chills, actually. It's such it's a great, like, yeah. uh, chain of events here. Let's break down what you're saying. I think I'm hearing you're talking about relationships, right, and yeah. the importance of that. And I know you say that relationships are everything. Everything. Um, yeah. It's the way you help and provide value without the expectation of getting something in return. Yeah. So everything you experienced in New York sits on that backbone? That's all about... Usually. Now, yeah. is are we also talking about networking, or do you see it differently? How do we compare the two? I think the problem with the term networking is like it sounds very transactional, you know, or it can sound transactional the way that people that. use it. Whereas I feel like I I'm not networking just to like like transactionally have 15 more LinkedIn contacts, you know, like I'm I'm networking to meet people that I might like or I might be able to help. You know, that's hopefully the main driving kind of sort of position. And if good things come out of it, great. But, uh, like, I'm not holding a tally. I'm not keeping track of the score of, like, I've met 10 people this week and I didn't get 10 intros, you know, to brands. Like, I, I don't really care. Like, if you meet people that, like, I've gone to conferences and met people that have now some of my closest friends. You know, that is a massive win. I've started a not-for-profit where I met my wife and my best man, you know, which is crazy. Wow. So, like, we had a they had a ball, and I went to the ball, and I met my wife at the ball that this like dressed up kind of cocktail party, um, you know. So it's it's amazing how like sometimes you do things because it's the right thing to do, or it's like you think there's a way of doing something cool that could add value, and good things just come out. Some of the best things that have happened in my life have come out of me taking those blind leap of faith of doing stuff just because it's the right thing to do or it's something where you think you can add value to other people. So establishing relationships, certainly key to any entrepreneur, any business owner. Yeah. Can any personality type successfully do it or do you think you have to be a certain kind of person? I think if you're a certain kind of person and it comes naturally, it's a lot easier. But I do think you can work at it. You know, you, like, I think the tough thing is I see a lot of people trying to network or build relationships and it comes off very awkward. You know, they'll send or they'll, or they'll do like 
cold outreach to people. And like, I remember listening to a, a woman who, who was like head of sales at a big SaaS company and she was saying how she was like very brutal and blunt about it. She was like, if you send a cold LinkedIn outreach untailored, you're a total loser. She's like, that's the biggest loser move in the world. And like, there's like an element of truth to it though. Like, I I always try and get warm intros, yeah. and I'm always trying to like help people because you never know like, you never know like what goodwill or like someone who you helped at some company ends up another company, and then they end up being a client of yours, or like you host a dinner and they meet someone at the dinner, and that might help their company, and that's awesome. And it's hard to replace like the feel good nature of sh- of like feeling really good about yourself when you've helped someone else succeed, um, and it quite often it doesn't even take that much effort you know like you find someone just started a company he's like oh I I don't know where to start like I need to build a website and an app and stuff I was like oh I built apps for years like you should go talk to this company in Dumbo they're awesome right made the intro took like 15 seconds of my time yeah and you have nothing to gain or lose from it it's like oh go talk to them and they're they're working together now and so one of them got a new client he's stoked and one of them got this massive problem solved he's stoked like everyone wins you know like it's it just that's the kind of perfect, like it's almost the, the art of an introduction. Yeah, is there's, there's, there's like a real thoughtfulness to it. Just making a random intro is like a waste of people's time, probably. But if you can find those perfect, it's like matchmaking. You find someone who needs a help, and you find the person that's the perfect fit for helping them. Then both of those people win, and they're both like happy and like grateful. Yeah, which is awesome. I always considered myself a social kind of guy, but in years past. I always came at it from a very needy and insecure. That was a a turnoff because, I mean, how how much are we really going to establish of a rapport if I'm coming at at it with that? So I think until I was able to release all that and work personally to show up in a more, for lack of a better word, confident confident in myself uh, way, then authentic and genuine relationships can be built. But I always wondered for decades why nobody seems to get me or understand me or relate to me. So I think you just got to do a lot of the internal work, no matter what kind of person you are. Yeah. And I think when you start, there's always a lot of pressure. Like, let's say like I've, I've worked and trained with like lots of salespeople. And I think early stage, especially young salespeople, they always think, oh, I got to hit my quota this quarter. You know, and like they're trying to, they're always trying to land a sale as opposed to like, like playing the sort of long-term relationship game. It's like, who cares if you miss that sale, if it doesn't work, like, isn't it better to build a relationship with someone who might be a friend or might join a different company or like you might get a long-term sale down the track. Now I've started my fourth company and we're trying to get feedback on our product. And it's been awesome. The last five months, I think I've talked to over a hundred people. And like, I'm not trying to sell all these people. Some of them aren't even a good fit for my product, but it's been amazing to get their feedback. And it's sort of like, you're starting to like, just have that support network is so like um, rewarding. You know, even if none of them are customers of ours, uh, it's such an amazing asset to be surrounded by good people. Um, And when you start a company, like you think of starting that versus my first one where you know no one, 
like you're in such a better position and more confident, like it's 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 so much more helpful. And then it just builds on it yeah, because now momentum. there's there's literally no going back to the people you know. You already know them, yeah. So it's not like you can lose that. So no matter what you do next, there'll be a, a network of people yeah. who are who are there, associates and friends and colleagues and fans, supporters. Yeah, and I think like you always hear that that comment about how like the entrepreneur's journey is often a lonely one. And it is. Like, I moved to the city. I worked out my apartment the first year and a half. I was sitting at a desk by myself with no one else. And, like, then I'd go online at 4 p.m. when New Zealand comes online with the time zone. And then I'd work late into the night. And that was, like, my existence. And I'd go out, like, socially and try and meet people. But, like, I wasn't getting that social interaction from work or work colleagues because I had no work colleagues in person. It's, like, remote workers, you know, it's the same thing. And so I think, like... um yeah, it's just it's just kind of a, an interesting thing where like if you have a support network, those friends become such a big part of your journey, and building a great company, you know, like it's it's like sort of they often say like raising a baby. It's like it takes a village to raise a baby. It's it's kind of like that. Like I feel deeply grateful. I feel a little bit guilty because I have used a lot of people's time, a lot of people's effort, a lot of people's generosity people i've been the benefactor of a lot of goodwill and you know you i hope i've returned that x-fold i hope but like i am grateful for all that help uh in, in getting to where i am and to succeeding with companies like it does like it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of people to help succeed or help a startup succeed it's not one person it's not like this genius who started this company it's it's a team it's a team game at your core what what accounts for that having been the case um i don't know like i I just always like people i like meeting people i like helping people you feel good about yourself you know like it's like things like christmas i always like giving more presents like it's like and you always like i always like try and think of like things that are gonna surprise people or delight people or i always try and put an extra effort to kind of i don't know like do something special. Um, so I think there's a bit of that. I, I, I love growing up, like looking at advertising. I hate, I hate the idea behind advertising about getting served ads, but like brilliant, like things where people do something that's like, wow, that's a cool idea. And it like, that's kind of, I do like those sort of creative side of it. Um, so like I used to run events. My first event, I ran like a school ball at high school and We'd done like a lot of crappy school balls that I've been to where it's like you hire an event center and like everyone turns up and there's no decorations. And so I did it in a big marquee on our rugby playing field and we had like Christmas trees all through it and like we had a symphony orchestra play and like it took so much effort. I took like so much time off school (laughs) uh, at the expense of my grades, but I didn't really care because it was like something that I was really passionate about. It was just so cool to be able to run something and get like be able to have a budget and like design things and you know like it was as a 17 year old a 16 year old you know like that and i did the same thing at university at college i ran our local uh, ball i took a whole term off college to run a party basically um that's crazy if you're like focused on your gpa or whatever like i literally didn't go to class for a whole term just to throw like an epic party and i just wanted to throw like the most amazing kind of designed party. I threw like a midwinter Christmas ball for like the law and commerce students. And we had like 
ice sculptures and like you know it was so over the top um but it was so much fun like just creating something out of nothing and having you know the ability to run a budget and have like who doesn't want to have like 50 grand to run a party but like i then have the obligation to run an epic party like i don't want to you know like if people are going to give you money you got to make sure the product or the service or what it, what you present you want to wow them and so like I always looked at things like Circuit du Soleil or like the Vanity Fair Oscar party or like those kind of events which are like just so over the top or like in New Zealand we have the world of wearable arts where all these artists create these crazy spectacles and a lot of those artists work on Lord of the Rings and a lot of those movie sort of uh, that come to come to New Zealand and so I sort of look at those things and I sort of think like ah, you know if you're going to run an event how do you do something like out of the box that people remember or create something special like I don't want to just do something that's the same as something that already exists. And so I suppose I already always had that. I always liked doing creative stuff and marrying creative side with like trying to do the startup business side. How did you get how did you get Gary Vaynerchuk to invest? Yeah, so I, I was again very fortunate. Um, what's the story by the way? What's his what's the relationship there? Yeah, so Gary invested in my company at Carnival. Uh, he was our first investor. What kind of company is that one? It was a mobile marketing automation platform. We'd been a mobile agency for five years building apps, and we'd built this software product to be able to manage all the users, so do all the analytics and push notifications and that stuff. And so, wow. yeah, so we were kind of the plumbing behind the apps. And um, I actually met him through Bon and Bo, who's speaking uh, here today at this, at this festival. Um, Relationships? Yeah, I met Bonin through another relationship. So I met someone at Kraft Foods through an ag agency that we worked with, the one that cut us. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. That person at Kraft, Kraft split into Mondelez and Kraft. Mondelez is uh, their snack confectionery arm. They own like Cadbury and Oreo and Sour Patch Kids. So much money. Crazy. They're huge companies. Yeah. And so they said, hey, do you want to come into Mondelez and pitch? And Bonin had just started. He would joined from Pepsi. It was like his first month on the job. And I actually had this crazy journey. So, like, the, the meeting of Bonin was is as important as the meeting of Gary to, to the success. So, Bonin was um, first on the job. I went to this ad agency meeting at Draft FCB. May as well name names. Um, Why not? I turned up. It turned out they were having a strategy meeting for Oreo Cookie for their whatever anniversary. It was a big year. And I didn't realize that the agency, I was like a vendor. And I was a vendor that some person at Kraft had a relationship with and they thought I should be in the room. Wow. But they gave me the wrong time. They told me to turn up at like 10 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. And the agency was actually meeting at 9 a.m. And I was like, the first part of the meeting, they thought I wasn't important enough to be in. So I turn up at like 10.30. The meeting's already like in full swing. I knock on the door with the receptionist and like they're like, oh, excuse me, we're having this really important meeting at our grandiose boardroom at this fancy agency. And who's this kid? Yeah. And um, and then they're like, can you shut the door? And then the craft person, uh, Ed Kazmarek, he was like, no, no, I invited Guy. Guy, come and sit with me at the head of the table. So there's like 20 people in this meeting, and I get to sit beside the actual the client who's making the decisions, not all the people that are pitching for the work. And this meeting was like one of the most painful meetings in my life. It was so boring. It was like six hours long, and their great idea was they were going to use augmented reality and if you hold your phone up to the Empire State Building, uh, Oreo would come out or King Kong would come out and they'd create like 10 of these animations and they're going to spend $2 million building an iPhone app 
where if you would just happen to be by the Statue of Liberty, if you anywhere else you can't use it, you had to be at the Statue of Liberty, some animation would come out. So no one was going to download this thing. Like, I know how apps work. Like, people download Uber and Snapchat and Starbucks and Whole Foods. Like, they don't download some gimmicky Oreo advertisement um, where you can only use it if you're on Liberty Island. You know, like, it instantly cuts down the audience to, like, a t- tiny amount of people. So I sat for, like, six hours, and then, like, Bonham was like, hey, so, Guy, you do apps. Like, why don't – what's your opinion? And I was like, and everyone's like blowing smoke up their own ass about how great it is because they're about to sign a $2 million contract. And I was like, look, this kind of sucks. It's a terrible idea. No one's going to download it. You really said that. Yeah. I I love it. I was like, no one's going to download this thing. Like I've built augmented reality apps before. They're like, they're cool, but they're mostly gimmicky. No one downloads them. They need utility. It either needs to be some utility app or a really great game, like amazing entertainment. It has no repeat value. It's going to cost so much money. Augmented reality only doesn't work unless you're like the visual recognition of it scanning the Empire State Building is only going to work if you're at the building next door at the same height, you know, like it's, or if you're on the boat uh, going Staten Island Ferry, you can't scan the Statue of Liberty because the, the visuals aren't going to scan properly. You're going to need to be on Liberty Island. Like it's just a gimmicky thing. It's not going to work. It sounds like your input so far, what I just heard is like, yeah, it's direct, but it's not out of line. Yeah, I tried to be a t- little bit tactful, but I was just like, this is a terrible idea. Okay. So everyone was like, just moved on. They were like, okay, cool, we've heard this one dude. And then they just moved on with the meeting. And so I was just like, okay, I've used my one shot in my first big meeting in New York City, and I've blown it because I've just told them not – I haven't told them what they want to hear. I've told them what I think is the truth. Okay. And I, I, walk, I walk out of the meeting. It was literally like six to eight hours. It was so long. Like everyone's exhausted. I walk out of this thing and I walk out onto the street and Bonin walks out, who's like the new like head of marketing for Monolith. And he's like, hey, guy, do you want to grab a drink? And I was like, oh, yeah, cool. I've never met him before. And he's like, sits down and he goes, hey, so you know we're not going to get that day of our lives back, right? That total waste of fucking time. <laughs> I was like... What? He's like, yeah, so that was a total fucking waste of time. That was the stupidest idea ever. And I just sat through it. Uh, he's like, I'm glad at least that you were the only person that actually said it how it was. Like, He's like, I don't even know why we're working with this agency. And so I was like, wow, okay. So he got it, but the other 20 people in the world the room didn't. And so we were chatting, and um, he was like, look, this budget's already been assigned to the agency. They're going to do something stupid, but maybe I can scrape together a budget. What would you do? If you had a budget, and I said, well, Oreo, the problem with all these branded apps, like no one has a Coke app on their phone because like, what's the purpose? Right. Like it's, it, Coke's an amazing brand, right. but mobile apps are like for doing something. Like they're going to download Uber or, or Facebook or whatever. Um, so I said, the only way that you can get people to download a lot of times of an Oreo app is if you attach yourself to some kind of utility or entertainment. And I think it lends itself really good to video games. It's very casual. It's fun. And it's a good kind of audience. But you guys can't build the game because you're terrible. Like every brand is terrible at building games. You hire an agency. They design it. It sucks. You should work with an actual video game developer. And the biggest change, the biggest thing I pitched was you should not publish your own game. So you go to Mondelez on the App Store or Kraft Foods or Coke. They have all their apps. I was like, don't publish it. You should let the video game publisher publish it. And then they can cross-promote it across their network. And so we 
it was the first time anyone done this. It was basically like licensing, like you license in the movie industry. Did you suggest not having Oreo? I I could assume, but tell me why. What's the psychology? So it is psychology, right? Don't, is that why? Yeah, well, people don't go to the app store and search like oh, I need to find Oreo's account and look for all the apps. They go to the top hundred lists and see what the best game is. Is it Plants vs Zombies? Is it Angry Birds? Is it Candy Crush? No one's downloading an app because it's published by Coca-Cola. Okay. This is this is like Gary's whole thing where he was like, you know, the democratization of the internet. It's like you build yeah. something on the internet, no one gives a shit if it's right. branded with Coca-Cola. You don't get to choose. You don't get to choose. It's like people are downloading it because it's TikTok. Like TikTok's oh. crushing it. You know, Coca-Cola's app's not crushing it. So how did he come into play, Gary, so, from this point of the So story? fast forward, long story short, we ended up getting this opportunity. We built this game called Twist, Lick, and Dunk. We built it on a freaking tiny budget. Because you say twist, lick, and dunk. And dunk, okay. Yeah, so that was their ritual, the twisting of an Yeah, Oreo of course, lick and dunk, yeah, I love it. So it was like Fruit Ninja, you dunk Oreos into milk. Super simple. <laughs> but the key was, we did it with an amazing developer who had produced like 10 number one games. So they know what they're doing. And the day they launched, they cross-promoted across 100 million people, and it got a million downloads in the first week and went number one. So wow. instantly it was successful. And we sold virtual cookies in the game. So you could buy a virtual Oreo cookie. For money? For actual money. Oh. So this, this thing actually made about quarter of a million dollars profit. Which, that wasn't their plan, right? They, they, they were just like brand recognition here. The craziest thing was, it made money, and then their brand wasn't even set up to handle the money of the payments <laughs> because their advertising has never made money before. Their advertising is top of the funnel. They don't sell yeah, direct. Yeah. And so now they had this revenue coming in. They're like, how do we account for it? And so then they gave us most of the revenue and put it back into the game because they didn't, wow. it was tiny money anyway, a few hundred thousand dollars. They didn't care. But for us, we were like, this is amazing. We're getting more money. Yeah. So this game went huge, had 10 million downloads. And Bonham was like, hey, look, it's cool working with us. You should meet my friend Gary. Like, he's a really interesting guy. He probably love what you're doing. Did you know of him? Never heard of him. Is that right? Yeah, never heard of him. Um, yeah, and so we went up to Gary's office on Park Ave South on 26th Street. You don't say. And this was, he's now in like Hudson Yards in the fancy, amazing <laughs> building. But he had about maybe like 8,500 people, 85 people yeah. working for him in this agency. It was chaotic. It was like being in a dorm room. There's lots of young kids doing all these stuff on social media. And we moved into a, into a boardroom. And he's like, Gary, I want you to meet Guy. He's doing this cool stuff on mobile. He's been building mobile apps, but he's wanting to build this platform for managing the apps. And Gary's like, well, I invested in Buddy Media and Wildfire, and they did the same thing on social media where they built this platform for managing your, your users. And it's kind of the same thing. So he's like, I, I get it. He's like, do you have an office? I was like, no, I'm just like traveling in and out of the country. He's like, do you want an office? I was like, yeah. He's like, why don't you come and work in my office? Wow. And so he gave us an office that day. And we started working out of VaynerMedia, which was pretty amazing, like just super kind. And he started helping us a bunch. And so when it came to fundraising, he was like, who do you want to get to? And I made a list of all the top wow. VCs. And he gave me intros to about half of the VCs I wanted. Why did he do that? I mean... Do you think? I do honestly think Gary's just like, he's generally um, like a helpful person. He's just, he, he gives a ton of value. And... Uh, and by asking why he did that, I'm really asking why would anybody do that for anybody? I think I think once you've had a level of success, you feel some kind of you feel part feel an obligation 
to help the next person coming through navigate the waters. But also I think you get a lot of satisfaction because you've sort of gone through this journey and you're like, ah, like I'd like to help the next person do it so they don't make all the stupid freaking mistakes that I made. You know. So he saw, um, I don't know if potential is the right word, but yeah. he saw what he liked and he's like, oh, he can just use a little bit of this, uh, yeah. this boost. Yeah, and I think he was he was super helpful. Like I'm so grateful. Like he found half of our investors, found a few of our early cl- contracts. Like he got us in with Anheuser Busch, who became one of our biggest clients. Um, what still like like the the apps? You're still uh, yeah. We were doing all the analytics behind it at that stage, yep. but yeah, we had like all of Anheuser Busch's apps on our platform. We had like 60 different apps on there. Wow. Um, so it was just hugely helpful. And um, uh, yeah, now I suppose like him giving me that help you start realizing that you need to return the favor for the next entrepreneurs. Like I, this is what I'm saying. Like I've been the beneficiary of so much help and you're sort of like, and I think to do that help justice, the best thing you can do is show that you sort of take it on board and then help the next guy or girl or whatever. Putting all this into perspective, the talk we've, we've had. Yeah. What is the message we're saying? Uh, What are we telling the person listening? Um, I think I think it's paying it forward a bit, like it's sort of adding value and helping people without any obligation or like expectation of something in return. I think that's kind of one of the things that, like when I first came here, I struggled with that. I think I I, I think it, it was more transactional. You sort of think, oh, what am I going to get out of this? You know, like I think people don't see this. Like my wife definitely sees it because I'm out late at night. I'm like, oh, I've got to make this intro for this person who's trying to raise money, or I got to help this person get into this thing, and like. I'm not an investor in, you know, 90, 99% of the companies that I help. 99% of the companies I help, like, are not potential clients for me. But you do it because it's the right thing to do, and and it's also rewarding. It feels good to help people, and and I think the most rewarding thing is seeing if they actually turn that into success. And this is kind of why I started my meetup. I was the benefactor of one Kiwi intro to another Kiwi intro to another Kiwi intro to signing CNN, and so I was like, well. It's amazing you arrive in New York from New Zealand. I know no one. None of these people know each other. I was like, I should start a little coffee meetup. And then the next entrepreneur that comes through, I can intro him to all the people that I met. And so that's how it started. And now I've done that for eight years every month. And it's some of, I've made friends out of that. I've had one with our prime minister, our old prime minister at the United Nations. Like it's been, it's just been an amazingly rewarding kind of group. And it's not like rewarding from like, like transactionally thinking, oh, I need to get business out of this. It's just been rewarding. It's been like awesome. I've made friends, friendships out of it. Like that's, that's your crew. That's your, you know, like, so um, I think that's the thing. Like the relationship stuff, it's just so important. Like, um, and I think, I think it takes a bit of effort. You know, I think Facebook was like one of those things where you have all these friends on Facebook and you sort of realize like, oh, fuck, I haven't talked to those school friends in three years, you know, like. And I'm hopefully quite good. I think I'm quite good at like trying to stay in touch with people because you sort of realize you fall out of touch. And if I'm, if I'm truly honest and you want to get down to the rawest form of it, when I was at university, my first year at university, I found out that one of my best friends, it was actually my first best friend when I was five years old through eight years old at my, my school. When I was five through eight, the first best friend I had um, had committed suicide, which was crazy. I remember my first year at university or college, age 18, someone telling me, and I was like, fuck, I haven't talked to this guy, Carl Dewhurst, awesome guy, he was so friendly. I just remember like 
being friends with him till I was like 12 and then he went to a different school and I didn't see him till I was like 18, 19. And hearing that, you're sort of like, ah, oh, like, I wonder if I could have done something to, to prevent that or, you know, you start questioning that and like, it's weird, like that actually had quite a big effect when I think about it. Like I, I thought about it a lot, not, not for a week, not for a month, but for years. I thought about like, you start thinking, oh, like if someone's down on their luck or someone needs some help, like, you know, just making that small amount of effort, it doesn't take much time to check in. Hey, how you doing? Like, hey, you want to grab a coffee? You know, like it's because you never know, like you might be in that position as well at some stage as well. So it goes full circle. It's not just about you giving out to someone else. It's sort of, um, you know, now like I know that a whole bunch of people's lives are, are, are sort of in a worse position having that person not be in the world um and so you sort of hope that you know like you can you can prevent that from happening so i think there's a little bit of that that was a big sort of strong moment where i started thinking about this stuff of trying to make the effort if someone you haven't heard from you sort of reach out and you hey how's it going or if someone's down their luck you grab a coffee with them and you know everyone goes through kind of ups highs and lows ups and downs so you sort of you included we've come a long way yeah. from your time with the um earthquake yeah, yeah with the right? earthquakes and that business and awkward all that stuff. car accident yeah and yeah, so not you, being able to pay a staff of eight yeah you you sort of you, you really you, you realize like i think when you first come out here if you've if you've had any privilege or like growing up in a first world country and going to good school and having food on the table and being able to go on holidays that is privilege, you know, like there's a lot of people in the world that don't have that. You are privileged, even if you don't think, hey, we're not on super yachts and, you know, like we're not like millionaires or anything. But like you are privileged to have a good upbringing. And I think, um, you know, you sort of, I feel like you do owe it back to other people. And you yeah. start, you start, stop judging people as well in circumstances because you start realizing that a lot of success is actually down to luck, perseverance as well. But there's a lot of timing and luck. Like, the next person who created the version of Facebook might be a homeless person. I don't know. Like he may have fallen or he or she may have fallen on his luck because he, because Facebook blew up and there's only one Facebook or there's only one Google. What happened to the, what happened to the person that built the third best search engine? You know, like, I don't know. Like you might not have a job now. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Wow. I will leave you with this final question. Guy Horrocks, how would you like to be remembered? Um, I, I really enjoy having fun and spending time with people. And I think like, I think uh, if people see, I'm definitely a passionate person that wears heart on my sleeve. I think if people sort of remember me as someone who's fun, who brings energy to the room and hopefully helps, helps people. Um, I think that's, you know, that's all I can ask is, is if you've made other people's lives better, that's, that's great. Well, uh, you can count me in on that <laughs> receiving end. For real, Guy, yeah, uh, this awesome. has been absolutely incredible. So so glad to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. Live at Propellify Innovation yeah. Festival. We'll do it again real soon. Thanks again for uh, joining us. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.